Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Wild Connection. This is the post-COP26 series of episodes this week and next week. And first, I want to thank everyone for listening. I appreciate all of you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. All right, so I just came back from Glasgow attending COP26. And on paper, it looks like there's some great things that came out. You know, some key agreements like slashing deforestation by 2030, slashing uh, emissions by 2030, some countries delaying that to 2070, like India. And ironically, just a few days after returning from COP26, we have India in lockdown, not because of COVID, but because of pollution. And we have the United States government selling oil and gas leases just days after the climate summit. And the question is really, can we rely on governments to do the dirty work, do the cleanup work? Well, they've done the dirty work. (laughs) Can they do the cleanup work? And I think ultimately the answer is no. I'm going to talk more about my feelings about COP26 and what I think we need to do. But for now, First, though, I'm excited to have this week's guest, filmmaker, community organizer, conservationist, author, John DeGraff. We're going to talk about a lot of things, including his latest documentary that's in production on Stuart Udall. There was a time when some politicians actually cared about conservation and cared about the planet and were strong voices for its protection and understood that our survival and not just our survival, but how we thrive is so tightly linked to nature. It's one of the reasons why this podcast is called Wow Connection. We are connected. We're connected to the natural world. And my guest this week understands that too. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this wild and crazy thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdolin.com, or on the podcast website, Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. If you like the show, please subscribe to it so you never miss an episode. All right, everybody, we're going to get started in just a moment. This is the post-COP26 wrap-up this week and next week. This week, I'm excited to bring to you filmmaker, conservationist, community organizer, author, John DeGraff. We're going to talk about a lot of things, happiness, beauty, well-being, all how they're linked to nature and conservation. And this illness we seem to have, affluenza, something that he wrote about many years ago and is still at the heart of the problem we're facing with climate change in the future, our consumption. I'm going to talk more about that at the end and my thoughts about what we can do to take charge of protecting the planet and limiting the disaster that awaits us, the loss of species without needing to wait for governments or corporations to take the lead, so to speak. All right, let's get started. 
All right, everybody, I am excited to welcome filmmaker, author, community uh, organizer, activist, and passionate champion of the environment, John DeGraff. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> when I was preparing for the podcast, you know, I, I did a little bit of uh, digging and found that that there's some depths to you that I didn't really uh, wasn't aware of when I first initially kind of uh, communicated with you. And so you got your start as a community organizer. So can you tell me a little bit about what drove you to pursue that? Well, I actually, um, I dropped out of college after my first year at UC Berkeley and joined VISTA, the Domestic Peace Corps. And they actually trained me in community organizing. And they sent me to live for the next two years on a Indian reservation in northern Wisconsin called the Bad River Indian Reservation. Uh, and that's where I worked. That's where I kind of learned a little bit about life. It was a completely different environment than my suburban California environment. And uh, I learned about many, many things. And I already had a strong interest in the environment. So that was there to begin with. And But I think community organizing helped think about how we get messages out to people and talk to people and so forth. You've spent, you know, the better part of your life getting messages out and, and we're going to talk about all the different ways that you've done that. I guess, you know, because this show is called Wild Connection, I'm always wanting to understand how people feel connected to nature. And since you, you just suggested that you kind of already always had that inside of you, I'm wondering, you know, when did you first become aware of this passion for the environment, passion for nature, and and how do you connect to the natural world? Well, unfortunately, less than I used to, but uh, I got connected through it through my father, who took me backpacking uh, in California from the age of ten, and at uh, I think eleven, I took my first major backpack trip in uh, Yosemite National Park, and then I uh, kind of really got into that, into the Sierra Nevada and into into backpacking, got a couple of my friends interested in it. And by the time we were in high school, we were only 14 years old, just getting out of our first year of high school. Our parents uh, trusted us enough to take us up to Yosemite, two of us, and drop us off. And when school ended and pick us up a uh, little less than three weeks later. So it wasn't a long trip, but we were on our own. To, and and we that was a very exciting experience to be backpacking and hiking and completely, you know, call home, collect once a week. That's what, what we had to do. <laughs> so uh, after my sophomore year, we extended that to six weeks. And that's what the, uh, ha I would spend half the summer, my last part of high school, uh, work, work a bit at the beginning of summer and spend the last part of summer uh, backpacking in the Sierra Nevada. So um that was my introduction to uh, a lot of things. And I kind of developed from the, what I call the backpackers theory of life. That, okay. uh, tell me, tell us about that. Yeah. What is that? You know, when, you, when you backpack, obviously you have to carry everything on your back. So you have to understand what needs and wants are. You have to understand that you can't carry everything because if you do, you'll be miserable, but there are certain things you have to carry because otherwise you'll be miserable too if you get too cold, <laughs> if you get too hungry, if you don't have water. Uh, and some my our first experience as kids, <laughs> the thing we didn't have was mosquito repellent. We got literally <laughs> eaten alive. Uh, but um, so there are things that matter. But the point is finding the balance 
And I think that that's what we've lost sight of as a country. I think of, of uh, uh, the United States as a, as, a, as a backpacker with a very enormous backpack, which in which we are trying to pile everything and more and more and more. It's already full stuff, and, and, uh, you know, and we're trying to put more and more in through, through economic growth and other things. And uh, uh, in fact, what's happening is we're kind of falling backwards, um, and uh, you know we we're we're like uh, uh, Reese, Reese Witherspoon in the movie Wild. I know, don't know if you saw that, but she was um, <laughs> hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And she started out by trying to take everything she thought she could take, and when she got up with her backpack, she fell over backwards. And she was like an overturned beetle or turtle or something that couldn't right herself until she could finally extricate herself from the straps. And then she had to get rid of all this stuff before she could hike. That's, I think, the fundamental lesson that we need to learn as Americans, because we also learned that you didn't need a lot of stuff to be happy. We had beauty. We had good health. We had the opportunity to be out in a, a, a great environment. We had exercise. We had companionship. We had all the things that, that were great. And so I became very attached uh, to the environment through that and, and later on. And now my son carries that on. He's an avid. I don't, I don't backpack anymore, but my son is an avid backpacker. He's out all the time and hiker, photographer, and so forth. So we're kind of passing on the family tradition. Yeah, well, and before I talk about, I want to pull that thread on beauty because um, I know that that it forms the the basis for one of your many, you know, uh, pursuits in terms of, of foundations and activism and organizations. But I'm curious, did you have any particular, is there, is there a singular memory from those first early days, an encounter or an experience that really, for you, encapsulated just the beauty of what you were doing and where you were? Yeah, there's one, and it almost sounds woo. So I'm always a little bit shy about about mentioning it. But um, this was when I was 15 or 16. I, I guess I was just turned 16. It was uh, in the early winter of 1962 when I was a high school kid, and uh, we went winter camping. My friend and I, uh, two friends and I, to uh, the Desolation Valley Wilderness near Lake Tahoe, with the intent of climbing a peak called pyramid peak and i'd been sick for two months before that i'd had terrible sinus issues and 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 my mom didn't want me to go she was like you know you're going to get pneumonia you die uh and um you know and i and i didn't feel great but i really wanted to go on this trip and we had found that the weather was going to be good that there was really very little um uh snow yet in the mountains i mean there was snow but it wasn't thick and so um so I went and we camped the first night at a place called Lake of the Woods. Uh, you know, we there a little snow around, but we were able to clear a nice flat place. Uh, that afternoon we had climbed, um, we did climb Pyramid Peak. We went in there and we climbed the peak and I was felt, feeling so sick, it was 10,000 feet. And, you know, I'd come right up from sea level and uh, I wasn't feeling well anyway and my headaches and my everything got worse and worse and i barely made it back to camp with my friends and they told me you know hop in the sleeping bag they gave, gave me tea and soup and i went to sleep and i woke up in the middle of the night and it was this steep clear cloud uh, cloudless starry starry night 
uh, and um, it was still completely still, no wind, no anything. It was the calmest thing. And I woke up and I felt this kind of calm come over me. And I realized that I didn't have any pain anymore. And it had just gone. All the stuff in my head was gone. And I was just blown away. And I, I got up and walked to the lake shore. The lake was frozen, but with no, not really any snow on it, but it was a frozen lake. In the distance, you could see Pyramid Peak and the peaks and all the, the stars everywhere, a canopy. And I just was kind of blown away by the beauty and magic of it. I think that was the most single, you know, I, I was kind of in tears because it just was sort of overwhelming. There were lots of beautiful incidents, but that's the one that does stand out. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I had, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't unwell, but I was in South Africa. Um, and I don't remember where it was exactly. I want to say somewhere near like Pilanesburg mountains. I'm not sure. Um, but I was visiting a friend and we went to go visit her friend who had a cabin up in the mountains and there was no electricity. And I, I woke up in the middle of the night as well. And I looked outside I went outside and I'll never forget like the stars. I had never seen a sky like that because I grew up, you know, in South Florida and then I had moved. I mean, actually Flagstaff, Arizona is pretty good for stars. And that's where I was in school, but it was still nothing. And also the, the stars were, I saw the Southern cross that was, for whatever reason, seeing uh, that, because I'd heard that song, you know, by Crosby, Stills and Nash about the Southern Cross. And somehow, you know, I just felt this like moment of of how, you know, I was connected to everything, even other people and the works that they'd done and the music they'd written. And, and here it was in real life. Um, and I was underneath it. So that for me, I always have that moment, um, even though I've seen lots of amazing things and, and so grateful for that. So speaking of beauty, you know, and, and this connection to nature, is that what prompted you to found and beauty for all, um, which is an organization um, and, and sort of can you tell us a little bit about why you founded that and what its mission is? Sure. Um I, I've, that's kind of the third organization that I started. I was um, involved initially with the whole voluntary simplicity movement. I made a film, Affluenza, about overconsumption in America. That got me connected with that. And I decided after 20 years of filmmaking, without being much of an activist, that I needed to work on the issues that my films are about. And so I got involved in that. We started a campaign called Take Back Your Time about overwork in America to give people more time to actually appreciate things. And that led me to being invited to um, a number of international conferences on happiness, uh, basically done by the government of Bhutan, a little country that uh, created gross national happiness ideas. And, uh, and then I was invited to Bhutan to be an advisor to their government in 2013 uh, on the issue of time balance, which is one of their, their key elements of, of happiness. And uh, so that was a great experience. And I, I came back and, and co-started an organization called the, uh, the Happiness Alliance with a, a friend of mine who's still running it today. It's at happycounts.org. I actually started that before going to the town, but that's, anyway, in any case, it's all, it's all of a fashion. And then I just continually became 
aware of the polarization in the United States, how it was getting greater and greater, and how we needed some kinds of things that would try to pull us together. And to some degree, time did that. And to another degree, talking about well-being and happiness did that, although some people think that's sort of way out stuff. But but and then uh, finally, I just had the idea that everybody I know, whether they're left, right, center or wherever they are, really appreciates beauty and that the appreciation is fairly universal. It's not like uh, they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so there's some truth to that, of course. But uh, and especially I'm not talking about cosmetics or physical beauty or anything. I'm talking about the beauty of nature and the beauty of design, human design. And what I find is that there's remarkable universality to what people appreciate, that all you have to do is go to Zermatt, Switzerland, and, and see that there's more Asian tour, tourists than there are Europeans, or, or to Yosemite or anything, or to go to a, a Japanese garden and see how much Westerners appreciate the more manicured beauty that, that Asians may prefer. And so uh, I thought, well, beauty is something we share. It's something we're losing in a way. and that if we uh, work to make communities more more beautiful and more with more access to green space and nature, um, we can use that to bring people together across these lines. And to some degree, that's been working. Uh, I've talked to audiences. I've written for more conservative publications. I'm pretty liberal, but I've, I've written for more conservative publications and got a good response to that. So I think it's working. And one of the things I've discovered is how underrated beauty is as a source of happiness and a source of satisfaction with our lives and our communities. Uh, there are a lot of studies that show that, but it's not part right now of the data we measure when we look at well-being or happiness. So I'm pushing to get it into that data collection. Um, and uh, I'm actually going to be the, the opening night keynote speaker at a conference in Luxembourg in June. That's called uh, new approaches to well-being, and I'm that's I've been invited to give make the case for why we should do why beauty should be into that. So we're really finding that the, uh, a study done by Gallup and the Knight Foundation, for example, uh, found that um, of ten aspects of life that Gallup asked people about in 26 communities ranging in size from Philadelphia down to tiny Aberdeen, South Dakota. The top three were the same in all 26 communities. And one of the top three was beauty. It was, I feel like I live in a beautiful place with good access to nature, parks, and green space. The other were um, a, a sense of community, of activities that bring people together in a sense of community. And the second one was, was openness and, and friendliness, you know, whether it's a community where that's open to people uh, uh, tolerant, uh, diverse, open, and so forth. So, but the things like uh, like money, even safety, schools, uh, all of those were well down the list, you know. And it, yeah. this, there was no variation. This was the same in all twenty six cities. There's a lot to unpack in in what you just shared, and but what's interesting is is that so I, I love that you've keyed into that as a point of connecting us all to each other and to the natural world, and so. You know, I want to sort of try to, I had a thought about, you know, this connection between happiness, well-being, beauty, time, um, and consumerism. So I, it, it all came in my mind. I wonder, do you think that in the United States, this 
sort of obsession really with stuff, with acquiring more, because it hasn't really gone away. There's been sort of minimalist movements. There's pockets of, of people that have embraced less, uh, but by and large, it's still sort of this voracious sort of beast of more and more and more. And I wonder if it's because there's a lack of, um, so I had a guest on, um, a journalist and he used the word ikigai, which is uh, Japanese for like a sense of purpose in your life. And so I feel like, is it possible that people feel the need to fill up that, you know, because they feel some sort of emptiness or lack of connection between their lives and, and some kind of purpose, um, with what they're doing, they're working, uh, and the pandemic has caused many people to step back and go, okay, what am I doing with my life? And so I'm wondering, you know, do you think there's any validity to that? And do you have hope for change on that front? Well, I think there's a lot of validity to it. I mean, I do think that there's not much purpose in simply, uh, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. I mean, that's just not not something that gives people satisfaction. And we do know, I mean, certainly uh, the happiness study says that that people need to have a sense of purpose, that the, to, to do something that they feel is contributing to the community and all that is, that they already got that. They may not have the beauty yet, but they got that one long ago, that, that that's essential to well-being. And I think we're missing that. And we do try to fill it with, uh, you know, we're bored when we don't have of that because we don't have this inner inner strength to 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 go out and make for ourselves what what matters so uh, we consume and so it's partly internal it's also partly external because our system really runs on growth and we're constantly bombarded with advertising saying that hey we should feel empty if we don't have the latest gadget and so forth so it's it's an in, it's a it's a mix between the internal need and the external false uh, ideas about how we might satisfy that need. And I knew that that I satisfied the need in in hiking, backpacking, being with people, with other people. But part of that, and and David Brower, who was uh, the great leader of the Sierra Club in the 1960s and and led the fights for many things, uh, was a longtime friend of mine in the latter years of his life. And he always made the point to everybody that if you appreciate this, if you've had fun out in nature, if you've enjoyed these kind of places, then you really have a duty to protect those, defend them, and try to expand them for other people so other people will have the chance. So that in itself is a certain sense of purpose. Yeah. And I, I think this whole obsession with GDP, with the gross domestic product, you know, the grosser it is, the better we're supposed to feel. But of course, the worse we seem to be feeling. Our, our GDP has risen rapidly. And every year we fall in the ranks of happiness of the world's nations by the UN, UN surveys. So it's really not working, um, but we've been pushing it. And both parties, and this is a this is why I actually think this is a place to come together and talk about something different, because unfortunately, both political parties seem to believe that growth is is an imperative. Got to grow, grow, grow. We're going to make it grow faster. No, we'll make it grow faster. And um, that's just not 
working for us, um, Stuart Udall, whom I'm making a film about, uh, pointed that out in the mid '60s. I mean, he he basically said that the, my favorite quote by Stuart was uh, he said. Uh, a rising gross national product, which we called it then, a rising gross national product has become the holy grail. And those economists who are its keepers have no conception of the economics of beauty. And by that, he meant a different kind of life, a quality of life. And he used to emphasize that, calling for different measures. This was back in the 60s. Uh, yeah. But we didn't listen and we're paying for it, I think. Well, and it's, it's like, it's like those voices that have been constantly saying that haven't risen to the top because they're not loud enough to overcome sort of the corporate machine that drives actually the political landscape in this country. My personal opinion, whether it's the left or the right or the middle or up or down, whatever. And so, you know, it's interesting because you brought up Bhutan and I, I have to confess, I am super jealous that you got to go to Bhutan. So I have wanted to go to Bhutan for the past 30 years. It is, and I know they, they really, um, restrict the number of visitors. And that's because a lot of foreigners initially were going in and, and trading, you know, pack of cigarettes for some of their national treasures, um, and their historic, uh, you know, and, and, and archeological treasures. And so they really clamped down and, I've done a good job. Like you need an escort. You can't just go walking around Bhutan on your own. And so I fully approve of this and maybe that'll get me an invitation. I don't know. Uh, so very jealous. I do have a fear of heights. So this has always been a bit of a conflict for me uh, because it's, it's a, you know, Bhutan is up there in the, in the mountains. Um. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's in the elevation is high, but of course, there's plenty of places where you don't have to stand on top of a little peak. You know? Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, good. The so capital, the capital is 8,000 feet. Well, so. I, yeah, I can, I can usually don't start feeling, I'd have to acclimate. When I first moved to Flagstaff, I was, I came from basically below sea level. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was sick for a week. I didn't understand what I was feeling. Now I know. Um, but, but, you know, they do, they have this gross national happiness index and they also have uh, really pushed hard on reforestation. So, you know, it's, it's, they combine the environment with the, their view of, of well-being. And, you know, I feel like Western sort of science is finally catching up. We, we have many, many studies that support being out in nature or looking at a picture of nature <laughs> will, um, will increase recovery time, will reduce the chance of heart attack, stroke, lower your blood pressure, reduce anxiety um, and depression. And right, and so we have all of this. I'm so glad that you are taking, you know, taking this uh, to the international level that, that it's getting the attention that it needs. And I'm wondering, you know, I mean, I want to talk about films for a second because I think, um, you know, you sort of already mentioned, you know, the film you're working on about Stuart Udall and, and his quote about integrating beauty right into this. But before we kind of dig into the film, I just want to talk about filmmaking as a medium. You know, why are films so powerful for conveying messages? Well, we are pretty visual, I think, people and we've been taught and we've, we've seen an awful lot of films. Uh, you know, we, it, it is the, our basic discourse in, in 
the country in a large way. I mean, I wish we read more. <laughs> I really do, you know, and I enjoy And you're a writing. writer, too. You, you are yeah, a writer, I'm too. And I'm actually currently working on a novel, so I have to take it that people will read things. But I read a, one survey that said that half of the of college graduates never read a book after they leave college. So um, so you have to reach people where they are in a, in a way. And and film is certainly that medium. I mean, radio works too. I like the audio format as well, but uh, film brings it together. And it's fun to make films. I mean, I I started I started in print, uh, actually uh, writing magazine articles and things like that. Graduated from print to uh, being a talk show host on a radio station in Minnesota, and. Uh, and then being a public affairs director of a, of a Minnesota radio station. And then I met an old character that, who I thought someone should make a film about. And I ended up doing that and giving it to, it aired on Minnesota public television back in, this was in 1977. And uh, it won PBS's top award for the year. It was like, whoa, you know, I was so lucky. I just, uh, you know, I couldn't believe it. I suddenly had this track record. So that I could do more, though it took some time to get into it full time. But um, then I really started making mostly environmental films, and I did a biography of David Brower. That's how I really got to know him. Uh, that was for uh, 1990 Earth Day. It was the PBS special for Earth Day in 1990. And during the course of making that film, I had the chance to interview Stuart Udall. Uh, who had been the Secretary of the Interior, and he and David Brower had both worked together and clashed. They clashed over the Grand Canyon dams, uh, which uh, Stewart's assistant, Floyd Dominey, the Commissioner of Reclamation, wanted to put two power dams at the Grand Canyon. And Udall was going along with it at first because, as an Arizona politician, it was kind of forbidden to be against water projects. And he knew that if he wanted to run for office ever again in Arizona, any kind of office. And he was interested in the governorship, senator, even though he was was then interior secretary. He knew that he couldn't pose this, but Brower kept pushing him on it. And Udall took a trip uh, down the Grand Canyon with his kids. And 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 he'd also been in Glen Canyon, which he, he supported the building of Glen Canyon Dam. And he, he then concluded that not only had he made a terrible mistake, regarding Glen Canyon Dam, but there absolutely could not be dams in the Grand Canyon. So he stopped it and he got a lot of flack for that. And he was never able to run for office in Arizona again as a result of it. But that brought the, the two men who were together on almost everything else, national parks, air quality, water and stuff. It brought them together com completely that they didn't really have differences. Brower thought of Udall as a great the great environmental political figure. And I think Udall felt the same way about Brower as an environmental activist. So, Well, so what's interesting to me is that you made that film um, with David Brower m many years ago, and, and you are now, only now, you know, putting together this biopic film on, on Stuart Udall. So how do you... How do you choose your topics? And, and I want to talk about the timing of this one in a minute, but how do you sort of generally choose the topics that you focus on? Well, I, I sometimes say they choose me. 
something comes up for me that is just too compelling and I feel like I'm called to do, to make something about it. And usually there has to be a really good story. You know, it can't be a preachy, just data filled thing. There has to be, I always feel like there have to be some characters who change. I mean, it has to be an element of storytelling in it that that's how we learn best. Some, there are some exceptions. Affluenza has little stories, for example, and it succeeds through humor and, and comedy and stuff uh, more. But generally speaking, documentaries that uh, I don't want to make and that bothered me and got me into filmmaking is the ones that are just completely gloomy recitations of everything that's wrong without any uh, hope and without any characters except sort of cardboard characters who just scream and yell that everything is wrong. You know, right. Right. Kind of gonna, they feel like that's enough to, to put on. I remember this from, uh, uh, from the forest wars that we had in the Pacific Northwest in the early 1990s, uh, when we were fighting to stop cutting old growth timber and all these things. And a lot of films were made and, and they, they, um, they uh, um, were, were uh, interesting to me because I was a we had a film festival and we would get all these submissions and uh, often the ones about the forest would start with you'd hear a chainsaw you'd see a big tree you'd hear a chain chainsaw you'd see the tree falling sometimes you'd see the chainsaw if they had enough budget to do that but then you'd see the tree fall and then you'd see a group of people who are basically chained to trees screaming stop the rape of mother mother nature et cetera, et cetera. And while I sympathized with them politically and with the ideas, I thought these films were singularly ineffective right. because they started right out. So uh, then there were other films that actually started sort of the opposite. They started with a lot with loggers and with people who were, um, uh, who were, uh, had believed in this and were doing it and stuff. And, they were portrayed as good people, but they, they they felt their jobs, their life, everything was dependent on that. And and the ones where they actually made a change and turned turned around, those stories were the films that were very very effective. Uh, and and I, I I felt you know we we have to to uh, I have taught film on many occasions, and I've always said you know just think about this. You don't want to just start remembering all the gloom and doom, or and or start out already with a bunch of opinions in which people know exactly what you think. So if they're on your side, they might stay tuned unless they get bored. If they're not on your side, they're going to turn it off immediately. And you've, you've gotten literally nowhere. So uh, I said, the first thing you need to do in a good story to work as a film is you need, you need characters, you need stories, you need people, and you need people generally who change because that's what interests us. How, how do people rethink things. Secondly, you need uh, um, well-delivered factual information that's believable. And that. And only third do you need opinions. Opinions <laughs> need to come after you have the audience really hooked into the fact that this is a good story and these this information is believable, you know, that's being right. provided. And then, you know, let people, by that time, they're willing to listen to what your characters have to say because they care about them as people. Well, uh, I think that's so essential. Yeah. Well, and so, so I want to talk about some of the characters in this um, film that you're making, but 
But in general, how do you go about, especially when you're making a film about someone that's, uh, that is in the past, how do you go about um, discovering the characters that are going to help you tell the story or create the story along the way? And how do you, if you get pulled to something, you've got to find archival material. So how do you find the people that will help you tell the story of the past? Well, you know, um, that's interesting. I'll, I'll just use the Udall film as an example. I think that's yes. simpler. So I got interested in doing this. I I really admired Stuart Udall. When I met him, I just thought he was the neatest guy. He gave me a copy of his book, uh, The Quiet Crisis and the Next Generation, which he signed to me, which I realized I still had on my shelf. But um, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about Stuart Udall for many years. And then a year ago, January 2020, I read an article that said that if Stuart Udall was still alive, he would have just turned 100 years old, but he died in 2010. And I thought, Stuart Udall, there's a blast from the past. I mean, what a fascinating character. I wonder if anyone has done a film about him. And I couldn't believe that no one had, because after all, the most famous interior secretary in the nation's history, the Department of the Interior building is named for him. The easternmost point in the United States is named for him. I mean, he's who is internationally famous. And he's responsible for almost every major environmental bit of legislation we take for granted. It has Stuart Udall's stamp on it. So I thought, can't be that no one's done this because I'm in check. And I did. And I found that there were only a couple of little tiny things. One that was pretty well done by New Mexico Public Television was 15 minutes. But it was strictly about Udall in New Mexico, essentially, and um, and where he, he finished his life. So I thought, well, I have to... First of all, I'm going to try to reach out to members of Udall's family. So that was the first tour still alive. And I uh, was able to reach his son, Dennis. Uh, and we got together. And then Dennis introduced me to his brothers and sisters. Who, so I, I, and I got to talk to them. And they're all activists today. You know, they're all doing great things. And uh, Tom was a senator from New Mexico uh, until quite recently. Uh, Mark, a nephew of Stewart, was a senator from Colorado. They uh, and I learned about their growing up in this little town of St. John's, Arizona, in the middle of nowhere, in a Mormon ranching family. And uh, this, to me, also made the story more interesting because this is not this is sort of surprising that this kid who grows up in the middle of nowhere in this Mormon ranching family becomes this this figure, and his brother Mo. Also, who even ran for for, for president. Uh, then I I went to the biography. So I read two biographies, <coughs> excuse me, of Udall, and I contacted the biographers and talked with them at length. And um, so really I started learning more. And then I started from everybody. You get another character to talk to. And now there's so many. You know that's the, the problem with this wasn't finding characters. It was like who to leave out. <laughs> right. So. And I, and I just found that certain parts of the story, I wanted the contemporary relevance of Stuart Udall because he's an old guy. You know, I mean, he died at the age of 90, 11 years ago, um, you know, and uh, what possibly could be relevant about this guy? Well, it turns out everything, because all of the issues that he was concerned with um, are the issues that we're dealing with in a big way right now. When Stu Udall went to the University of Arizona in uh, uh, after right after he got out of the army, 
Uh, he was a, a, a gunner on a machine, on a, a B-24 bomber in, in Europe. And he came back and went to the University of Arizona to actually finish up. He'd been there a couple of years before the war. Uh, and he played basketball. And he was the star guard and the, uh, took the University of Arizona to their first National Invitational Tournament in Madison Square Garden. His brother, wow. Mo was the center. Moe's six feet six. Moe's so good that he played professional basketball for the Denver Nuggets after, after college. But when the two of them came back from World War II, they were very, very angry about the segregation in the military. They had actually been taught by their parents, um, and, and it kind of came out of the Mormon roots. They were told, you know, when we were way back uh, in the 1800s, uh, we were persecuted. We were discriminated against. We have to stand up for people, other people who are discriminated against. And so um, Udall, the Udalls found out that in the University of Arizona at that time, it had black students, but it was segregated. Black students couldn't eat in the student cafeteria. They had their own places to read in the library. And the Udall said, no, that's not acceptable. We, we need to change that. So they invited black friends to eat with them in the cafeteria in violation of the University of Arizona's rules. The university got mad, but it caved in. Because, and partly that was because these were the two big stars on, on campus. Right. And they were taking this stand. And that continued with Udall. He, he fought to tr- seriously integrate the Park Service. And then he took a, um, a really strong stand about Native American self-determination. And later spent 10 years of his life doing pro bono legal work for Navajo uranium miners. And... Uh, downwinders, people who were in the in the face of the atmospheric testing who got cancer from radiation. Uh, so he he really became an advocate of Native American self-determination. Uh, of, and then he got into these other issues, uh, cultural, cultural issues, uh, the growth issue that we, we talked about, obviously the environment and beauty. And so in my view, um, and he worked so well across the aisle. Udall really believed in in trying to have respect. I mean, he said his kids tell me that there were always Republicans over for dinner at their house. You know, they didn't agree. Mm-hmm. Udall Udall was a very close friend to Barry Goldwater, who was his political opposite in the state of Arizona. Truly, but he said Barry always loved the land, and we were friends. And their family friendship went back to the 1880s, and so uh, they would go. And Mo and Barry would go on, on uh, trips together where they would they would give a lecture together, you know, and they would disagree with each other, but it was always respectfully. Uh, uh, they were also very close friends with John McCain. Mo, Mo Udall was uh, in the hospital for the last seven years of his life. And during that entire period, John McCain was had gotten so close to Mo Udall, was such a friend, that he would go visit Mo every week on Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock and read to him and stuff. So it, it that's another part of the story that we can get past this kind of rabid enemy stuff that we're doing right. today. Well, and the irony is, right, that the Udall Foundation, it also has in there, embedded in there, um, I forget the particular name, but it's about conflict resolution. Um, and they, they, they um, support uh, conflict resolution between whether it's two communities or whether it's uh, government uh, agencies, uh, you know, dealing with natural resources. 
Um, and, and actually, Udo has connection to our current Department of Interior, Deb Haland, right? She's uh, the first indigenous person to hold that office. And she is um, from a Pueblo community that was that has been impacted by uranium mining, right? Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and he was uh, Pueblo de, de Laguna, is that? Laguna Pueblo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Laguna. Laguna Pueblo mm-hmm. in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And right. and also, I think one of your characters, I have a story about one of your characters. I mean, not directly. So Babbitt, who was um, another Department of Interior, is one of your characters. And so I study prairie dogs and, you know, many ranchers and I would use Babbitt as this like example, but many ra- uh, ranchers, you know, despise prairie dogs. And, and I've never understood, you know, how we, we pour millions into recovery of the black footed ferret and millions into poisoning their only food source. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it literally makes no sense at all. And, and cattle ranching is subsidized by the federal government. So there's enormous political lobbying pressure, you know, to perpetuate behaviors and activities that are quite harmful, not just to prairie dogs, but to other species. But I remember when we needed to relocate, uh, emergency relocate a, a population of prairie dogs and Babbitt Ranches is up in Flagstaff and they have one of the healthiest grasslands that I've ever seen when it comes to ranching because they they probably have enough land, but they also rotate their cattle and they don't have enormous herds, you know, um, so they're not over grazing. And they wanted the prairie dogs on the land because they understand that the prairie dogs are good for the grasses. They're good for the soil. And and so we released some prairie dogs on Babbitt ranches up in up in Flagstaff. And I remember thinking, you know, there's somebody that that understands how it all connects and how it all works. And so I think, you know, I mean, you sort of answered why this why this film is relevant now. I mean, we're also we're also in the midst of what is going to be and is becoming a, a massive environmental crisis. You know, I'm heading to the the COP26 uh, as a observer uh, for the University of Arizona uh, I'm in the second week group and, you know, I really wanted to go because I mean, this is it. It's no longer preventing global climate change. It's trying to keep it below a certain threshold. And that requires, you know, tremendous cooperation across the planet really. <laughs> and so, you know, do you, did you also Think about that when you decided to make this film now about where we are and how far that is from where he would have hoped we would be at this point. Yeah, I did. It wasn't my first thought, you know, my first thought. In fact, not not my first thought was that Stuart Udall was just a great story and I was about the environment, you know. Uh, But then all these other things, as soon as I started doing a little research, I realized how much more Udall had to offer that he was a very complex uh, intellectual figure, almost a Renaissance person. I mean, he was a poet. He was, you know, he, he did so many, so many uh, fascinating things. And so, yeah, and I have, uh, and, um, I had a chance to, to do wonderful interviews with both Deb Haaland and um, Bruce Babbitt for the film. So they're both, both, both be in the film and they're in little sample tapes for the film. I thought Bruce was very thoughtful. He really credited Udall with very much transforming 
the Bureau, the Department of the Interior before he came. Uh, Deb Holland also spoke really um, positively about the whole Udall family and their, their influence on her. Uh, Tom Udall, Stewart's son, was really um, a big impetus for getting Deb Holland into politics in the first place. So, uh, yeah, the, um, and it's great, you know, the Flagstaff, I, uh, it's a place I spent a bunch of time working on the film because there are several characters in the film who are in Flagstaff, including um, this wonderful Navajo artist named Shanto Bigay, whose paintings are just beautiful. And they're, they're, they're incredible about nature and the landscape and all of that. And, and also uh, they're poignant. Uh, he has paintings about the impact of uranium mining on people and things like that. Just, he's a terrific guy. And, and uh, so I wanted to, I think he, he exemplifies, he talked about the concept of uh, uh, hoso, hoso, uh, a Navajo concept kind of meaning, meaning beauty, balance, uh, well-being, all these things kind of put into to, to one. And I, I think in a way, Stewart in his life exemplified that. I think that's, that's really what Stuart Udall meant when he talked about beauty. It wasn't just scenery. Yeah. It was a whole way of life. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because I feel like in some ways, and I don't know if you do, but we're, from where we started in our conversation about you um, doing Vista and being part of an indigenous community in Wisconsin, you know, that you've, you're, you've, you know, this path that you've taken through your life now brings you to this moment where you are reconnecting back in many ways with those communities and the film is in progress, right? So, so what is the timeline and how can people support getting this film done? Well, they can go to our website first, which is stewardudallfilm.org. Uh, and they, on that, they can see our 12 minute sampler, uh, they can donate if they choose to do so, and we would appreciate that. The film is virtually all shot in the can, as we say. We've done the photography, the interviews, and all of that, but we still need to raise quite a bit of funding to to finish the editing. And uh, my original plan was to have the film for Earth Day 2022, and the Department of the Interior wanted to do a world premiere there of the film. Uh, they still want to do the premiere, but we're not going to make it by Earth Day because we haven't got some funding we were hoping we would get. So uh, once we can pull the rest of the resources together, it doesn't take it won't take us that long to finish the film. My hope is at least that maybe by fall, uh, you know, a year, really less, less than a year from now, this film will be finished and out there. We've had uh, great support um, from the University of Arizona. Uh, they uh, have been working with their ar archives people because they actually have the Stuart Udall archives at the University of Arizona, wonderful collection. They've been so uh, uh, helpful. The Udall Foundation is at the University of Arizona, as you mentioned. Um, there is, uh, yeah, just a, just a lot. And of course, uh, Arizona Public Media, which is also based at uh, um, the University of Arizona, is our PBS, they they would be our PBS presenting station for it. And so um, I haven't talked to them for quite some time because we're in a little bit of a lull, but but um, they've been very helpful as well. So, uh, you know, great things going on in Tucson. And um, uh, Stuart's 
90, now 92 or 93-year-old brother, Burr, his younger brother, his little baby brother, uh, lives in Tucson, and he's still practicing law full-time. Wow. Guy is the funniest, uh, funniest guys ever <laughs> meet. So, you know, I had a great visit with Bird out in Tucson uh, with uh, another person in your area who I'm sure you know, Gary Nabham, the, the great uh, uh, ethnobotanist. He lives down in Patagonia, but he was in Tucson for a long time. He knew Stuart well. He's got a lot of wonderful people like that in the in the story. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I am, I'm, ex, you know, I'm excited to see this. Um, I appreciate you doing what you're doing to be a voice for beauty, for the planet, for people. Um, and, and uh, I'm going to put links to everything on the show notes so that people can see your other films and read, uh, get connected to your books and, and many of the organizations you're a part of. So taking back your time, happiness and the beauty for all. Um, thank you so much, John, for being on the show. My pleasure. It's great. Great talking with you, Jennifer. Yeah. So have a great day and I'll, I'll follow up with you as well. That was such a fantastic conversation and so many amazing points were brought up. One of the things that I observed when I was at COP26 was, well, when you look at the targets that were set for Paris in 2015, the Paris Agreement, 17 out of 19 of them weren't achieved. There were several panels where it was clear that even the 2019 agreements hadn't been achieved, those targets, including the gender equity. So when we think about who's being impacted, it's not only certain nations, but women are being disproportionately impacted by climate change. That's because we do most of the work. We collect the food, we collect the water. We are the ones that bear the brunt of most of the catastrophes that happen including the COVID-19 pandemic, but that's a different topic. The other thing I noticed was we were in the city of Glasgow and I'm sorry, Glasgow, like people are friendly, but you got to do something about your trash. At the end of the day, I was really disheartened, not by what governments are failing to do, but what people are failing to do. If you're waiting for governments and corporations to fix the mess they made, they're not going to do it. Let's be honest. All you have to do is, is look at the recent sale of oil and gas leases, and you have to look at India, who was trying to push cutting emissions to 2070, and New Delhi is completely shut down indefinitely. Kids can't go to school 
because the air is so toxic. So what does this mean? Does this mean we have no hope? We have no optimism? Not at all. I think we have the capacity to change our consumption because as long as we want what they're giving, they will keep giving it. And so how do we change our consumption? What can we actually do? And you hear this all the time, buy less, use less. And even something as simple as picking up your trash, which is not the responsibility of a government and it's not the responsibility of a corporation. That's you. You eat something while you're walking down the street and you just toss it. I was shocked by the amount of, I'm going to use the British version, rubbish all over the streets in Glasgow, including, incidentally, the trash left behind those protesters who are angry about what governments aren't doing to fix the problem that we've all created. Just going to let that sit for a minute. You're protesting climate change and you leave your trash in the street. I saw animals eating our garbage and this happens all over the world. I saw a seagull eating a pizza. Gulls don't eat pizza. Well, they do in Glasgow. So I felt a little bit hopeless. If we can't even bother to pick up our garbage, how in the world are we going to solve a major problem that's facing us? And I think at the end of the day, something that came up in my conversation with John DeGraff is that we just keep buying and buying and buying to fill that emptiness that's inside of us without a sense of purpose without a sense of meaning, it's hard to care about much of anything in your environment. It's hard to care about other people. The irony is if you start caring about other people and you start caring about other species, you might just end up caring more about yourself too. So here are some things I think we can do. And first, I just want to acknowledge that it'd be great if deforestation was actually cut completely by 2030. But what that means is that you give up buying your teak wood products. You give up buying certain things because they're just meeting a demand. You know, right now, consumer spending in the United States is soaring. Buy, 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 buy. And all the messages we have is buy, 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 buy. That will make you feel better. Somehow it doesn't make you feel better. So the first thing you can do is stop buying and buy what you need and only what you actually need from corporations that are being responsible about their impact. You know, one of the things I did do when I was in Scotland is I went on a tour. And so that means that I rode in a van that was burning fuel, obviously contributing to the emissions. But the company, Rabbies, that I took a few tours with They do their best to offset. First of all, they support local businesses. So that's nice. And second, in exchange for the fuel that they use in a given year, they either plant trees or donate money to organizations that plant trees, doing something to offset their carbon footprint. So supporting companies that are doing work like that. And that means you have to spend a little bit of time investigating Where does the product come from? What are the practices and philosophies of that corporation? Do you align with their commitments or lack thereof? At the end of the day, money and how we spend it 
will force or allow policies to take place. So the biggest impact you can have is how you spend your money and doing it thoughtfully and only when necessary. That's number one. Number two, you could support organizations that are doing things that align with helping people around the world, helping species around the world cope and adapt to the changes that are already happening. And that's hard to do because maybe life for you just is normal until it's not. The third thing that you can do is vote. Vote at the local level. So it's in your communities, right? Vote at the local level to put in office politicians, leaders, whose actions, not just their words, whose actions align with what you think needs to happen with regard to the environment. And finally, the fourth thing that you can do is get involved in your community. If every single person did something just in their immediate surroundings, even if it's picking up garbage, I'm talking to you, Glasgow, pick up your trash. That would make a world of difference if every single community around the world started doing something to clean up, provide habitat, for animals, and to help people who are being disproportionately impacted by the changes that we're seeing. And speaking of habitat, I just have to say, in the United States in particular, all these green lawns need to go. All these monoculture lawns that HOAs demand, we need to put front yard pollinator gardens. We need to create wildlife habitat in our yards. And then we also need to learn to live with other species. And that can be hard, depending on the species. I struggled in my relationship with scorpions. There, I said it. Okay, so there you have it. There were some key things that came out of COP26, reducing emissions by 2030, some by 2070, reducing deforestation, and climate finance, trying to raise money and get commitments from governments to provide funds to those countries that are already experiencing the devastating impacts of climate change that they didn't create. And unfortunately, some of the biggest emitters, China, India, Australia, and the US, have not met their targets and don't have a concrete plan in place that allows us to see exactly how we're gonna get to where they say we wanna go. So at the end of the day, I'm not optimistic about governments implementing solid strategic plans to back up their words but I am optimistic that collectively, if we choose to cooperate, we can individually do things that influence the outcome. All right, that's it for this episode. Now, next week, I'm going to have a guest that I met at COP26 who does mental health work and specifically focuses on something called eco-anxiety. So this fear and anxiety that many people are experiencing about what the future will hold with respect to climate change and the environment. So don't forget to tune in. We're going to talk more about feelings of what happened there and what we can all do to take back control of what's happening. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, you can check out the show notes for links to all of the organizations that John DeGraff is involved with and also some footage and photos from COP26. And you can get those show notes on my website, jenniferverdalen.com. 
You can also find them on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. You can follow us on Twitter at Wild Connect Pod. You can follow me at Real Dr. Jen. And if you're enjoying the show, please give us a like and share it so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, everyone.